Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. James chapter 1 verse 17. I know some of you think that that's the only chapter I have in my Bible. It's not, but we're going to keep digging because let me tell you something. James has a lot to say in just a matter of a few verses. James 1.17, one of my favorite verses, says this. Every good and perfect gift. Somebody say every. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights or the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's not going to change his mind one of these days about giving good gifts from heaven to you. Doesn't that just delight your heart to know that God's not going to say, well, you know, they haven't been a a good person this week. I'm not going to bless them with any gifts. Every good gift that you receive comes down from above, from the heavenly father. And he's not going to change his mind about giving gifts. Praise the Lord. I know this, that at any given moment and in this room, I know this for a fact and I can guarantee it. Everybody is dealing with something somewhere in their life. Everybody's got something. I want you to just look down the road. Just look around. I want you to notice all those people you're looking at, they've got something going on. It may be, it may be a new trouble that just showed up this morning. It could be a new trouble that just arrived at your house in the mailbox this week. Or it could be a long-term big old elephant that's been sitting in your living room for a long time. Matter of fact, he likes to hang from the chandelier right over your head so that you have to look up because you know he's there and you know he's not been going anywhere. He's just there. You're dealing with something. Everybody's got something going on. And we know that. We realize that. And James begins his book in verse 2, this letter, and he says, Count it pure joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Now, let me tell you something. That statement is a little bit over the top. Because if you're immature, you would say, Count it pure joy to face trials. That's as improbable as the Dallas Cowboys winning the Super Bowl this year. Easy, easy. But if you are mature in faith, if you're growing in faith, then you will recognize that even in the tough times of life, God is working for your benefit. He's working on your behalf. He's working to do this, as as verse 4 says, so that you would be mature and that you would be complete and that you would lack Nothing. How many of you would love to just lack nothing in your life? And when somebody says, hey, do you have any problems? Nope, I don't lack anything. God's taking care of that. He's taking care of all of it. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that we don't immediately go there, do we? When we face trials and we face temptations and we face trouble in our life, we don't immediately sometimes jump to that, oh, praise God, you're working for my good. What we usually do is we take the natural route. And the natural route works like this. The natural route says, okay, 
I'm facing trouble and external stimuli begin to hit me. I begin to read it. I begin to hear it. I begin to see it. And all of a sudden, my prefrontal cortex engages and it's overloaded with all types of information. Immediately, what you start doing in your mind, you start running these incredible scenarios. Well, what if this happens? Then this is going to happen. And what if this happens and that's going to happen? And you go, to, you go to work thinking about that and you go to bed thinking about what if this, what if that's going to happen? And then you wake up the next morning and it's not gone. Your mind is still doing that. And what happens is your mind is looking for more data and more answers to draw conclusions so that it can fix the trouble that's in front of you. That's natural. That's natural. Your mind is so good. It's amazing how your mind works because it wants to extrapolate all of these ideas so that it can make you feel better. So your body begins to, begins to be affected because if your mind gets overloaded, what happens is your mind begins to trigger other things in your body that sends chemicals throughout your body. And all of a sudden, things start happening. Your blood pressure goes up. Your heart starts beating a little faster. Your pulse rate's higher. You start getting some body aches. You have headaches. You can't sleep at night. You have a hard time concentrating. Why? Because your body and your mind are so overwhelmed by all that's going on. And then what happens is it bleeds into your behavior. All of a sudden you become edgy. Or grumpy. Some of you wives think your husband's having trouble, been having trouble all his life. He's been grumpy. You get irritable. You get a little bit short. Or because of that, it begins to, it begins to start trying to, to make you get quiet. Come to church. Get your hands in your pocket. You don't want to talk. I just want to go sit down, isolate. And that's what happens. Naturally, we begin to do that. And I can always read people when they're going through something because they act natural. It's not normal. They act normal. They act natural. Because that's how we usually do that. That's how we respond. And when people are going through these troubles, how do they typically... What do they do when their body says, hey, fix me? Well, what do they do? Well, sometimes some of you, when you get stressed, you like to eat. Do I have any eaters in the room? Come on, it's okay. It's okay. You get stressed and you go to the pantry. Oh, I'm just, I got the munchies. Just so stressed. I've got to eat. Well, you just ate, but I'm hungry again. Sometimes when we get stressed, we abuse things like alcohol. Sometimes when people get stressed on the outside and their brain doesn't know how to fix it and their body starts to begin to respond, they, they, they abuse drugs, prescription drugs maybe, things that the doctor's given them and they just do too much. They start going overboard because I've got to fix. My body wants to be fixed. We get stressed and we want to abuse that. Some people, when they get this stimuli and they don't know how to solve it, they'll, they'll go to sex. Or if they can't find it, they'll, they'll go to the computer. Maybe, maybe porn will help them. To cope with all that's going on around me, I've got to relieve this stress. I've got to get rid of it. I've got I to work myself up. Some people, they'll binge watch Netflix for six hours in a row. 
Uh Uh-oh, now I'm getting on some time. Some of you will do this. You'll take your phone out and for hours. I got caught in a... Mark Zuckerberg stole my brain this week. I'll just tell you that. I got caught in one of those reels loops. I told this to these guys on Wednesday. I was like, I was scrolling and I saw this band that, you know, I grew up with. I was like, oh, that's cool. I haven't seen that in 30 years. Oh, there's another picture and another one. Oh, and another. Oh, I know them. I know them. An hour later. I'm like, Mark Zuckerberg, get my brain back to me. I'm caught in an algorithm. My neural processes have started a loop and I can't get out of it. I wasn't stressed. I was just kind of bored, I guess. I don't know, but people respond that way. That's what we do. We get caught up in those things. And here's here's what we're going to do. The verses we're going to look at today, real quickly. James connects the trials that are on the outside to the anxiety and the stress that they cause on the inside and how we respond to those. And so what James does is, is he shows us that, that when trouble is on the outside, what it can do is it can create the perfect storm in your life. A perfect storm that will cause you to respond to it because you're overwhelmed. Because your brain wants it fixed and your body wants it fixed. And so what do you do? There's two ways that people usually look for joy when they are faced with troubles and trials. Two ways. One way is through their stuff. The other way is through sin. Stuff and sin. Let me talk about stuff first. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass because he will pass away like a flower. Now I want you to notice, what does he call him? He says, the brother in verse 1. And he goes on in verse 2 and he says, but the one, he's not talking about some other dude, he's talking about another brother. So he's saying one brother is poor and one brother is rich. He's not talking about a Christian and a non-Christian. He's talking about brothers. This, this brother here, he doesn't have much. This brother, he's rich. He's got a lot. But they should both do what? Take pride in their position. Take pride in their position. He's not defining them by what they have. He's defining them by how they respond to their trials. He said, look, this is where you are in the trial. This is where you are in the trial. It's not about what you have. It's about your position. You take pride in your position. Regardless of where you are or regardless of what you have, in life's trials, whatever you have, a lot or little, you gain no advantage. That's what he's saying. Okay, we keep going. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant and it blossoms, its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. James is leveling the playing field here. He's, he's erasing any superficial distinctions that people have between those who are wealthy and those who are poor. And if you think about wealth, And riches, I just want you to know, it's a very subjective term. Because in America, we are more wealthy than 99% of all the world. But I know Americans right now who are really struggling to make ends meet. Okay, Wealth is a sliding scale. Some days you may have and some days you may not. 
Some parts of seasons of life you might have a lot. Sometimes you don't have a whole lot of anything else. But wealth is this sliding scale. And here's the thing. Christians have been told to think about rich and poor in two extremes. Now, I call them extremes because that's what they are. You have what's called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is this. The more stuff that I have, the better I'm going to be because I will have so much, I won't lack anything. God's going to give me all that I need, all things, stuff. God's going to give me stuff and he wants to give me stuff because when God gives me stuff, I don't lack anything. That's prosperity theology. Then there's this other extreme and it's poverty theology. And it says, it says almost the same thing. It's just opposite. The less stuff I have, the better I'm going to be. And I have so little that I don't even know what lack is because I don't have enough to even measure. Take it. Take that car. It only runs on three wheels. It'll die before you get around. Take it. No problem. Here's the problem with wealth in this sliding scale. And it's a problem with prosperity theology and with and with poverty theology is that when joy doesn't come in either one of those extremes, all they do is just change teams. The rich guy says, oh man, I've got all this stuff. I've got way too much stuff and I'm not really happy. I'm going to have a garage sale. And so he goes and puts all his stuff in a garage sale and the poverty theology guy is like, man, I don't have enough. Maybe I'm not, maybe I don't, maybe I need more so I can have joy. So he goes to the rich man's garage sale and he buys the rich man's stuff so he can get rid of his stuff and the poor man can have more stuff and hopefully they can have joy and they've traded theologies. And that's how we've been taught to respond. And James says, look, the problem with stuff in those verses is that beauty always fades. It fades like a flower. And I think that's a perfect analogy for what's going on right now. It's 108 degrees. How many of y'all have to water your flowers? How many of you have just given up on it? Whatever. You know, I told my neighbor last week, I said, look, I'm glad I'm not paying your water bill, bro. I said, you know what the best thing you can do for Bermuda? Try to kill it, and it'll come back so strong. I said, I haven't mowed in a month. You've got to water your flowers. But when you go out there in the morning, and man, they're so, those flowers are all pretty. But by 4 o'clock, those things are so wilted up. The petals have fallen off. They're just laying over. They're just dead because they fade. They fall away. And what does James say? Because of the scorching heat, because of life. God's not judging the flowers. It's just life. The sun rises. The sun is hot. Therefore, flowers die. It's life. And he says, look, when you're looking to joy in your trials, you're not going to find it in your stuff. Things won't ever make you happy. But let me just talk a little bit more because I just, as I was preparing for this, I thought I needed to kind of address this issue. I want to talk a little bit more about rich and poor. You see, in our world, we've been taught that there are two categories of people. There are the rich and there are the poor. That is not quite biblical. You see, the biblical understanding of wealth is there are four categories. You have the godly poor and the ungodly poor. And then you have the godly rich and the ungodly rich. Now, if you're younger in this room, I want you to pay attention because let me tell you something. You've been brainwashed. 
Because in our culture, the primary economic discussion is dominated by something we call Marxism. Marxism is atheistic, it is godless, and it manifests in our world in places that accept communism or socialism. And you can pick a country and you can find this type of economic mindset. You see, Marxism and what, what we hear, what they teach at UNT, is that there are two classes of people. There's the oppressed and there's the oppressor. The poor are always the oppressed and the rich are always the oppressor. And then they assign moral grades to those two classes of people. Well, the poor are always godly. They're the good people because they've been oppressed by the ungodly or the wicked rich people. And what this, what this mindset does is they go look for policies or politicians that will go out and take all from the rich and will give to the poor. I've got your attention this morning. The rich are always the ones who are the bad guy because they take advantage of the poor. And they're always ungodly. Whereas the poor, you can excuse their actions because they're oppressed. They can live how they want to live. And what they do, you know, I mean, no problem because they've been oppressed. On the other side of that economic discussion, you have another approach that's taught in our culture. And it has its flaws too. Sometimes people on this side define rich and poor like this. Well, the rich are godly and the poor are ungodly because the rich have worked hard and God has blessed them for their efforts. And the poor, they're ungodly because they're lazy and they just want to milk the system and and they're just just trying to to, to get a handout and and they just take advantage of, of, of everybody and they're just getting what they deserve. Let's examine this biblically because those are the two things that are taught. Now, whether you know that your kids are getting taught that, that's exactly what they're getting taught. Biblically is the way James explains this. And here's what I want you to look at because he talks about, that's what verses 9 through 11 are. Let me ask you a question. Can you be godly and poor? Yes. James was godly and poor. Think about James himself. James grew up in a blue-collar home. Old brother Joseph. Brother Joseph was nothing but a blue-collar carpenter. He put his pants on before the sun got up every morning, and he went to work. And he built things with his hands. And when those boys got old enough, even Jesus and James or, and, and James and Jude, they said, boys, we're going to work. I need your help today. And so he would gather them up and they'd go, go to work. They're a blue-collar worker. They're working by the sweat of their brows. As a matter of fact, the Bible even gives a little bit greater definition because when Mary and Joseph went to the temple to offer the offerings, the Bible said they had to use the poor alternative. They didn't have a lamb. They couldn't afford one. They didn't have a, they didn't have a sheep. They couldn't, they couldn't do that. They had to offer a dove. And I'm glad that the Bible made exceptions for the folks that couldn't afford to do what they needed to do to worship God and to show that. So James was poor, but he was godly. Well, let me ask you another question. Can you be godly and be rich? Yes. I tell you, oh, brother Abraham, he was loaded, man. Dude had more cattle than he could, or more sheep and more herds than than he could manage. 
That's why he got his nephew to help him for a while. We saw how that turned out. He was loaded. Joseph. Joseph became the CFO of the, of the, of the largest economy in the ancient world, Egypt. He was the CFO. He made all the decisions for Pharaoh. Dude was making bank. Nehemiah, Ezra, those two guys were very wealthy. They were sent back with the key, by, the, by the king to rebuild. Matthew in the New Testament, I'll tell you, he's a tax collector. And if you know about the tax man, yeah, yeah. Let me ask another question. Can you be poor and be ungodly? Yes. Proverbs, chapter, or Proverbs has 30 verses that talks about sluggards. Well, how would you like to have that one be, be tagged as a slug? Man, he's a slug. Wow, that's bad. And Proverbs writes, he says, this person has no ambition, no urgency, no motivation, no, no desire to work, and, and doesn't even care about it. Always looking for... He, the Solomon writes, he said, look, these folks are always looking for a get-quick-rich scheme. They're looking for a way to beat the system. You can be ungodly and be poor. Let me, see, let me show you how it kind of works out in our, in our day and culture. You meet a, new, a, a couple, I come meet them, I say, hey, how you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great. And, so, and, they, and they were talking about, you know, how, you know, hey, we've got, I got this and going on, you know. And I said, well, hey, well, well, are you married? Well, no, we're not getting married. Well, how come? Because if we're just living together, because if we got married, then we're going to lose all the government benefits. Sorry, but I'm just being truthful, right? You can be ungodly and be poor because if you don't think about it through the, through the lens of, of the Scripture and through the Bible, then what you're going to do is you're going to do it to try to beat the system. And, and God can't bless that. He can't bless it. Can you be ungodly and be rich? Of course. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar, they were all ungodly. These people take advantage of their employees. They're tax cheats. They're Wall Street scammers. They're Ponzi scheme guys. They're rich young rulers that want to have a little bit of the world and they want to act like that they've got virtue at the same time. And Jesus said, sorry, it wouldn't work that way. What about Jesus? Was Jesus rich or poor? The answer is yes. Was Jesus rich when he was in heaven? Let me tell you, heaven's a pretty fabulous place. If you've got streets of gold and gold and pearls on the gates, you're pretty wealthy. That's his home. Jesus was rich. He was rich. He has everything. And then he comes to earth. Was he rich or poor? Poor. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, Though he was rich, yet he for our sakes became poor. Poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. So, was Jesus rich or poor? Yes. One of these days, we're going to get to see him because Jesus is now back in heaven. Is he rich or poor? Rich! You know how I know this? Because the Bible says that one of these days he's going to have what he's called, what they call the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's like a huge wedding reception. Let me tell you something. I've had a daughter that's been married. 
if you've got daughters in elementary, start saving now, okay? Just start saving now. So you're not selling like a kidney to, to like, okay, I'll marry you off. You know, I only need one. Jesus is going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and guess what? He's going to pay for all of it. Everybody's plate is free of charge that's invited. He's rich. Rich and poor. Jesus, the point is, is here's, what I'm, here's, here's the whole point of this whole thing. God doesn't care as much how much if you are rich or poor, but He does care if you have faith, and He does care if you are godly and ungodly. That's the whole point. You can't find... Your stuff will not bring joy to you in trials. Your stuff will not bring joy to you in this life. God wants you to have faith because faith will bring joy to you in your life. Your being here this morning will bring more joy to you than your next paycheck. Somebody say amen. Amen. Because God is the source. Your employer is not your source. Your source comes from heaven. The second thing that I want to talk about quickly is that joy is not found in your sin. You see, the more trials you have, the more pressure you have, the more stress you have, then the more temptation you have to sin. And you guys know this. Because when the pressure's on, when does the temptation come? Right then. The devil knows it. Satan knows how to come at you. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Let me show you something. Look at that word tempted. In the Greek, that word is perazo. It's the same Greek word that's used in verse 2 to talk about trials, perasmos, and to talk about testing, testing of your faith, perasmai. It's the same word. Trials, testing, temptation, it's all the same word. It's used in a different form, but it means the same thing. What James is trying to say is whenever you get tested on the outside, verse 13 says you're probably going to get tested on the inside. You see that? You're going to get tested on the inside. When trouble is out there and you're having, you're having problems financially, you're having problems in your, in your marriage, you're having, you're having trouble you know, just in your own personal life, guess what? You're going to get tested on the inside. When you're under pressure and you're most vulnerable, that's when temptation surrounds us. And when you feel those moments come, Here's what's happening. You're taking a test. You're in the test. When the trouble's on the outside and it hits you on the inside, at that moment, you begin your test. The teacher says, okay, time starts now. Pick up your pencils, turn your pages over. Take your test. Now, sometimes we fail the test. Let's all be honest. How many of you in this room have ever failed the test? Everybody, if you didn't raise your hand, I'm counting you anyway because I know better. We've all failed. This pastor has failed the test before. And usually when we fail the test, what we do is we recognize that 
And if you are mature in faith and you say, God, I still want to go your way, what you will do is you will take responsibility for that failure. You say, yep, that's my F right there. God, forgive me. Help me. And guess what? You're going to take that test again. You're going to have to look at that page again because he's going to say, until you pass, I'm going to keep helping you take this test because you've got to win here. But other times, if you're immature, what you do is if you fail the test, you start what we call the blame game. And you blame everybody. And if you look in verse 13, what does he say? When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. I mean, the blame game started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam, right? The Lord says, hey, what have you done? Well, we know what he did. You know, Eve gave him the apple. She, he, she took it from the, from the serpent. He takes the apple. He eats it. He, he uh, sins against God. He did exactly. God told him, he said, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. Don't do this. And what does Adam do? He sins. He fails the test. And when God says, hey, what's going on? He says, I don't know, but that woman right there. I mean, Check her out. I mean, you created her and gave her to me. You were supposed to give me a helper and she caused me to sin. And on top of that, she's talking about some kind of serpent. Well, you probably created that too and it probably started there. So you just figure this out, God. I'm going to go for a walk with my new fig pants, fig leaf pants. It sounds like this. When you're in a hard season, God doesn't come through. You say, well, you know what, God? You didn't come through, so I have a right to just do what I want to do since you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Oh, come on. That's how you think. I'll show you, God. You're not going to help me with my temptation? Watch this. Yeah. Y'all are acting like, "Mm -mm, not me. Yes, you have. Or it comes out like this. Well, if he hadn't have said that, then I wouldn't have responded the way that I responded. Look at all the pressure I'm under. I have an excuse to do what I'm doing. I have an excuse to to abuse things and and to, to abuse the medicine cabinet. I have an excuse. Look at all that's going on. I don't feel well. I mean, I have a reason to do this. I was born this way. I've got the gene. Haven't we heard that one lately? It's just something in my family. I'm Irish. Just excuse my temper. And so what we do is we blame everything, just like Adam did. But we don't pass the test anymore when you blame. The truth is, is what happens out there determines what does not determine what happens in here. You do. What's going on in your life does not determine what you are going to do. You determine what you're going to do. You are responsible for your words. You are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for your, your reaction to your spouse or your, or your children or to whoever or to your parents. You're responsible for that. Because when you're tempted, the lie is always the same. God is not good and sin is not that bad. That's how it always comes out. 
So when we're tempted, we have to always remember that temptation is not sin. And I want you to remember that because that's so important. When you're under the pressure and you feel this temptation, remember that temptation is not sin. uh, Revelation chapter 12 says that the accuser of the brethren, he's always accusing you. And here's what he'll do. He'll come to you and he'll say, I can't believe that you thought that. I can't believe that you desire that. I can't believe that you would even consider that. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. Did he sin? No. When your temptation comes, you are just turning your page over and you're taking your test. But that doesn't mean that you've sinned because the enemy will tell you, man, you've even, you, 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 you had that thought. You are a sinner. You just might as well just go full on, 100%. Let's go. Jesus didn't sin, but he was tempted in every way, the Scripture says. So how's that process work? Let me give you the, the four ways of process. I'm going to move real quickly. Number one, it begins with the desire. Look what James says. He says, he says that, that each of us is tempted when by his own evil desires. We all have normal desires. We all have normal things that are natural. And in and of themselves, they're not sinful. At this point in the, of the day, some of y'all have a desire to eat. That's a good desire. After I'm done preaching. But it's a good desire. Sometimes we, we feel fatigue. Well, that's good because your body's saying, hey, I need rest. The desire for sex is a good thing. If not, we'd have no little bitty kids over here next door. Be an adults-only service. That'd be kind of boring. But what happens is when we begin to satisfy our desires in ways that God, that's outside of God's plan, that's when we begin to let temptation take over. You see, the Scripture says that eating is normal, but gluttony is sin. The Scripture says that sleep is normal, but laziness is sin. The Scripture says that sex is good, but it should be honored, as Hebrews 13, 4 says, honored by all, and the marriage bed should be kept pure. So see, there is a boundary in that. So if you don't know Jesus, the thing is, is that you've only got those desires. But in just a minute, I'm going to tell you that God gives us more than just those natural desires. The second part is deception. Look at verse 14. He says again, he says, So after his, by his own evil desires, then he is dragged away and enticed. What James uses is this fishing analogy. How many of you like to go fishing? A few weeks ago, I caught a 15-pound mahi-mahi. It was awesome. As soon as I got him in the boat, I got seasick. Praise the Lord. Got that sucker reeled in before I got sick. He uses this fishing. He says, no temptation appears as temptation when it first starts. It starts and it comes in like a fish. What do you do when you catch fish? Well, you have to lure them away from the little hole that they're in and you have to to hook them with a hook. You see, everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. When he said, hey, I want you to go be fishers of men, you know, what the, you know what the demons of hell are trying to do? They're fishing for you. They're trying to tempt you with the bait and the hook. The fish only sees the bait, but he never takes a look at the, at the hook. Here's a reality that you need to remember, that different fish require different bait. The people that are sitting close to you, they may not fall into temptation by the same bait that he helps you to fall into temptation. He may use different bait 
But unfortunately, what happens is we judge another person's bait and dismiss our own. I can't believe those two men are sleeping together. Well, you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Hey, I'm just calling it like, it's, like it is, right? You want to talk about that because that's their bait. Don't look at mine. Sex, money, food, comfort, gambling. Satan knows what your bait is. He knows exactly where to catch you. And when the pressure is on on the outside, he's going to throw all that right in front of your nose. And you won't notice the bait or you won't notice the hook because it isn't about the bait. What you have to remember, it's about the hook. It's about the hook. Satan's lie is that, hey, it's going to be enjoyable. And guess what? It is until it kills you. Sin has always worked this way. You can get a little pleasure for a whole lot of pain because you're going to pay at the end. Temptation carries that, always carries with the same bait, the appeals of our natural desires. The third thing is that is we move into disobedience. He says in verse 15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. You move from emotions and desire to intellect and you move to the will. James changes the picture from fishing to the, to the picture of birth. Gives, it's conceived. Conceiving sin is the way, same, happens the same way you conceive a child First thing you start doing is you start flirting. Hey, how you doing? You want to go hang out? You start flirting a little bit, and then you go from the flirt to the what? Hey, you want to go get a Coke? Or in my case, it was, you want to go get a cup of water? Very first date, I treated her nice. Treated her to a 14-cent cup of water at Sonic. Wow, I'm impressive, aren't I? Then you start dating. Then you're supposed to get married. And after you get married, you sleep together. And after, you get, after you've slept together, you get pregnant. And after you're pregnant, you give birth. Same way with sin. You flirt with it. Then you start dating it, hanging out a little bit more and more. Then what do you do? You sleep with it. You sleep with it. And then what happens? It, it impregnates you. And you give birth to what James says. You give birth to sin. And sin gives birth to death. That's number four. Sin gives birth to death. I'm glad it doesn't end there. My last point, and I'm going to wrap it up. Daniel, if you'd come. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. We've already read this. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth. James uses this analogy, but it's different. It's not talking about the conception of death. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In other words, he's going to give us birth, and Jesus was the first fruit, so he's going to give birth to life in us. 
Don't be deceived, he says. God isn't behind this. Know what you're looking at. That's the hook. It's not the bait. Because he says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in heaven. It's a good gift. That's the type of gift it is. But then he says perfect gift. And perfect gift is the, is the way it's given. Can I just tell you that if a gift is not given in a proper way, it can take away from the gift itself? If I were to buy my wife an anniversary present, and if I was walking by her in the living room and I say, hey, here you go, there's your anniversary present. Do you think that's going to go over well? Negative. Probably the last anniversary gift I'll have to buy. No. God gives the gift in such a way He knows how to do it. He gives us blessing. He gives it in a loving, gracious manner. And when you're in the middle of the test, you don't need somebody standing over your shoulder, breathing down your neck. What you need is you need Him to give you that grace and give you peace. Let me tell you what He gives you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. I told this earlier. You see, thankfully, when you're in the middle of that temptation and that test, you're not alone in this desire because He has given you the Holy Spirit. And in Him, the Scripture says, there is love, joy, and peace, righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. You can have joy in the Holy Ghost in the middle of your trial. That's how it comes. He gives us strength. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.16 that, that through the power of His Spirit, He gives us inner strength. He strengthens our inner man. He gives us a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Behold, all things have become new. When you don't know Jesus and you're confronted with temptation, you only have one choice to make. It's the same choice that every person has to make unless you have been created anew by Christ Jesus and He has transformed your nature and you say, you know what? I've got a different choice that I can make and I have new desires. Thank God that that's another one. He gives us new desires. He gives you a new appetite. You don't have to go down that same road. You get a new appetite. You don't have to give babies classes on reason why they need to drink and eat milk or eat food. It's an appetite. They automatically know, hey, I'm hungry and I want food. It's the same way when you come to Jesus. Your appetites change. You want to be what He wants you to be. You want to fulfill uh, His will in your life. That's what it means. He gives you a way to escape. He gives you a holy, totally new life. Because every good and perfect gift comes down from Him. Just remember that it may not always look like that good's coming, but it is. You may have a hard time seeing the blessing in the middle of the trouble, but I want you to know, my friend, those of you who are in the middle of trouble, whether it's new trouble, fresh trouble, or if it's that elephant that you've been dealing with for a long time, the Lord is working in your life. And He wants you to pass the test. Some tests last longer than others, but I want you to know He is good and He will strengthen you to help you pass the test. Would you just bow your heads with me this morning? I want to pray for you today. And I want to just simply pray this prayer. That if those of you who are really, really just, you're hitting it right now. I mean, like, it seems like everything is just compressed upon your life in the last 
week. And it's just more than what you can handle. And you've thought in your mind, man, there's ways that I can just escape this. Maybe I can think and find joy in this. And you've looked and you've tried to rearrange that. That's okay. That's just the process that your natural self would take. I want to just remind you that there is an, there is an abnormal way to do it. Abnormal to the world, but normal to the way the believer should respond. And that is by looking to the God who is good. His goodness will never fail you. Hold on to him. Right now, if you'd say, Pastor, would you pray for me? It just feels like the weight of, of the world is sitting on my, on my chest and on my mind. I'm stressed. I've got anxiety in my heart trying to figure all this out. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you would trust in God's goodness that doesn't fail. And not try to work it all out in your mind. Extrapolate these scenarios. Let him give you peace. If you're here this morning, I'm going to pray for you. Nobody's just, nobody's looking around. Please be reverent for just a moment. You say, pastor, would you pray for me? Would you just lift your hand and just let me, let me see you? Yeah. Yeah. I see your hands. I see your hands. I see your hands. I see you. I see you. You're just overwhelmed, overloaded. I'm going to pray for you right now, especially that God's goodness is going to just chase you down and catch you. Father, I thank you, Lord, for all of this day, Lord, for this presence that we have felt all morning. I pray, O oh Lord, that, Lord, that you would speak, Lord God, into these folks' lives. I pray that you would let your word, Lord, be strong in us. Let your word, Lord, come and, Lord, intervene, Lord, when we're tempted, Lord. I pray, as, just as Jesus said, it is written over and over, Lord, you, you allowed the word to press back temptation. I pray, O oh God, for minds and hearts that are filled with stress and anxiety this morning, that, Lord, that somehow that you would drain the cup and that, Lord, that they would release that to you and that they would fill it, Lord, with the trust that you are good and, Lord, your goodness will chase them down. Lord, do miracles in this house. Perform financial miracles, Lord, in this house. Perform healing miracles in this house. Lord, perform family miracles, perform marriage miracles in this house, Lord. As we release our troubles to you, let your goodness, Lord, every good and perfect come down. Because, Lord, we know one thing. James knew it well. You don't change. And you're going to keep giving us goodness over and over if we just hold on to you. Father, bless us today as we go. Let your name, Lord God, be bright, Lord God shining around us in this world that, Lord, needs to hear your word and your truth. We honor you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.